Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophecy of Zechariah and chapter 2. Zechariah was called to minister, to encourage, to exhort uh, the remnant of the Hebrew church that returned to Jerusalem. And he was called to encourage, exhort, and rebuke them for not building, rebuilding the temple of God. Now, the temple, remember, was not an end unto itself. It was not that God needed an earthly footstool, but rather the temple is where the means of grace were displayed. The temple is where the people of God were confronted with their need of God's grace and with the abundant supply of God's grace in the covenant, in the gospel. And so the concern of the Hebrew church for the temple was an indicator of their spiritual health and vitality. Not because there was something magical about that edifice, but their concern for that edifice indicates a delight in the means of grace that were set forth there, or the lack thereof. Likewise, today, a person's concern for the church The building or the body is often a concern for the means of grace that are manifested in the midst of the people who meet in that building. Now, sometimes it's merely sentimental, but often a concern for the church is because of a desire for the propagation of the means of grace in that place. And so Zechariah is sent to encourage the people in the rebuilding. And you remember in the first six or so verses of this prophecy Zechariah preaches a sermon. God gives Zechariah a word of prophecy to confirm to the people God's unfailing, steadfast covenant love. To assure them the covenant still stands. Indeed, said Zechariah, God was angry with your forefathers, but that anger for the sins of the fathers does not extend to the children. And so the good news is preached by Zechariah. Return to me and I will return to you. By the way, that word of gospel indicates God has already returned, doesn't it? God did not send Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai. He did not send these two prophets once the people had started to get their act together. But he sent them when the rebuilding of the temple had been stalled for more than a decade. When the spiritual life of the remnant of the Hebrew church had been stagnant for a decade. Then God sent his prophets. But here the word of God, the promises of God foretell fruition. Foretell spiritual fruitfulness that will follow their labors. The guarantee of mercy. And more than mercy is promised. Mercy would have been remarkable, wouldn't it? Mercy from this God would have been a huge relief for this people. But God in the opening sermon of Zechariah does not merely promise mercy. He promises his presence. Return to me and I will return to you. The promise of blessing is assured. And so we come to the third vision tonight. The the visions, these night visions, function to confirm the prophetic word that has been spoken. 
In the first vision, God illustrates his complete awareness of events on earth and God's purpose to bless Jerusalem. In the second vision, God illustrates the security and safety of the church are in his hand. That every enemy who rises against the people of God, for every enemy there is a corresponding servant of God to put that enemy down. And to ensure that the church will never perish. And so here in this third vision, beginning in chapter 2, the prophet sees further details of the blessing and the prosperity that are foretold in that first vision. And so I want to consider three things with you this evening. Restoration measured in verses 1 and 2. Survey halted in verses 3 to 5. And then return demanded in verses 6 and 7. Now before we read God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is truth. And that your word is trustworthy and reliable, deserving of full acceptance. Grant that we would delight in it. That we would find you where you reveal yourself in your word and on this table set before us tonight. Hear us, our great triune God. Do business with us and get all the glory for it, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... A man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in the midst of her. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Amen. Thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's look, verses 1 and 2, at the restoration measured. There is a glorious future for uh, Jerusalem. The vision foretold of this measuring line in the first vision, being stretched out over Jerusalem, indicating progress and construction of a measuring line being stretched Now in this third vision, Zechariah sees a man holding a measuring line. Now, do note that the word for measuring line in this chapter is different than in chapter 1. It's more specific than previously. The one used especially here for measuring uh, something, not just a a line used in construction or demolition. God's good purposes to the church are not abundantly manifested in the days of Zechariah. But they shall be in God's time. 
And so in that sense, there's overlap with a Sunday school. The righteous must live by faith in God's word, not what seems to be. And so God's visions to Zechariah are confirming his words. that The people of Zechariah's day would live by God's word. The present city in which they live, if it could even be called a city, was inhabited only by a remnant. Those who returned were about 50,000. And not all of them lived in the ruined Jerusalem. And so the city, if it could be called that, was a fraction of that 50,000, which would be profoundly discouraging and frustrating to those who lived there. Consider in this country the city of Detroit. In 1950, Detroit had a population of more than 1.8 million people. And, of course, the infrastructure to sustain a population of almost 2 million. In 2020, there were one-third that number living in the same city with the same infrastructure cost, with the same geography, but now without the resources to maintain it. I remember reading a news report from the city a decade ago that the police response time in Detroit was measured in hours or days rather than minutes, simply because the city no longer had the resources to maintain adequate coverage of so large an area with so many vacant streets and neighborhoods. There's a website that catalogs this. You can see pictures that were taken even in 2009 compared to a picture taken in 2013 from the same location. And in just four years, houses that once had decently maintained lawns have become overgrown. In a couple of cases, the house was no longer visible in just four years. And that was just four years. Jerusalem was desolate for decades, for a generation. And Jerusalem had been violently overthrown and depopulated. And so the people come back these 70 years later to the undisturbed rubble of a once splendid city. And so they're discouraged, naturally. And so Zechariah sees in this vision a man with a measuring line. And following the vision of recompense upon Jerusalem's enemies, now comes a vision of the full restoration of God's people. And so the vision of judgment is followed by a vision of restoration. Ian Dugan notes God's purpose is not simply to punish the wicked, but to restore the people of God. For the good of his people and the glory of his name. But at this time in the history of the church, the people have an improper focus. For generations, the Jews presumed the holy city was impregnable. And Jeremiah, remember, rebukes the Jews for their trust in the temple of the Lord, right? That the temple of the Lord would save them from Babylon. You see that especially in chapter 7 of his prophecy as he rebukes them for saying, the temple of the Lord will keep us safe. Their vain trust in that husk of the temple was particularly ironic, ironic, though, given that Jerusalem had been conquered and her walls torn down on numerous occasions before by enemies. However, the city up to that point had not been depopulated. But in that final generation, they put their trust in the temple of the Lord rather than the God who dwelt 
in that temple. But after the city was conquered and the population deported to exile, many of the Hebrews, they they lost interest in Jerusalem. That city that had been the center of Hebrew life and national existence for 400 years, the city where God met with his people was increasingly being forgotten. You remember the psalmist even composed prayers anticipating that this would happen and seeking to stop it, right? Psalm 137, verse 4. How shall, we sing, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And yet, 70 years later, when permission was given by Cyrus to return, only a small remnant remembered Jerusalem. Only a small remnant set Jerusalem above their highest joy. Most of the Hebrews remained comfortable in Babylon, where they acquired a measure of security, prosperity, and status. And so that remnant returns. And Jerusalem was crucial in the purpose of the living God. Not as an end unto itself, but as a pattern, as a paradigm for what God would do for his people in making his church glorious. Abraham, the father of the faithful, looked forward. Do you remember what he looked forward to? A city that had foundations. Well, you see, here's this man. He's gone to measure the city. And uh, the trouble with this man is he's going to measure the wrong way. He's going to measure the length and the width. These are the same measurements of the old city. With its old man-made walls. But God has something different in mind. A different sort of city. A city with a grander plan for his people. God has something different in mind than what this man seeks to measure. And so you see in verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 that the survey is halted. There's an urgency, isn't there? Verse verse 3. Zechariah sees another angel coming with the urgent command to tell that man to stop measuring. The man was measuring the length and the width of the city for walls. But the heavenly messenger tells him, stop. Seems an odd command. Cities have walls. That's, in many ways, in the ancient world, that's what distinguishes a city from a village. A city has walls. But as we'll see, this city, her boundaries will seemingly be ever-expanding, ever-sprawling outward, immeasurably. So walls will neither be necessary nor possible. This will be a city without walls. And you see that at the beginning of verse 4, don't you? Now remember, uh, these visions are not to be taken literally. Yet there are those who might seek to impose a a theonomic reconstructive framework on this vision, who would want to try to interpret this vision literally and then apply this vision to American political discussions. 
I've seen signs on the news that uh, say this, heaven has no walls. Maybe you've seen such signs. Or uh, signs that, uh, that assert God's immigration policy is John 3.16. And then they assert that open borders is the Christian position. Or that Christians who insist on border control are in some way violating God's word. But to make such an argument, of course, neglects what the Apostle Paul preached in Athens. And I quote, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Acts 17, 26. Moreover, God is said to love the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 87.1. Nehemiah was, after all, commissioned by the Persian emperor under divine blessing for the purpose of doing what? Rebuilding the crumbling walls and burned out gates of Jerusalem. So, Zechariah is not seeing the present Jerusalem. He is seeing God's eternal purposes for the place he will meet his people. And so we could appeal to the scripture to argue for strict border control. And we can cherry pick a text. And we can talk about borders being instituted by God. And we can be theonomists on that side. Or we can be another sort of theonomist and we can cherry pick a text and say, See, there's no, the walls are bad. You understand that immigration policy and the righteousness of border control is not the purpose of Zechariah 2, nor is it the purpose of Acts 17. Neither is it the purpose of Psalm 87, nor the ministry of Nehemiah. We must be very careful how we use the scripture. We must not adopt a theonomic hermeneutic. Right? On the right wing in the last century, there were theonomists who were motivated by a misguided but a zeal for God, for his glory, for a love for his word, who sought to impose the scripture upon the commonwealth in an improper way. In our own day, however, we're seeing left-wing theonomists, liberals who will rip passages out of their context to advance a political ideology. But rather than doing either of those abuses, and did you see how I did that? Right, you can take Acts 17 and you can order for strict border control. Or you can take Zechariah 2 and you can argue for no border control. Right, rather than doing either of those things, which are both abuses of God's word, we must let God's word speak. And it becomes clear He's not speaking about any earthly city or civil policy here. If Christians are going to seek to support a godly border policy, they'll need to look more comprehensively and seriously at the scripture and not just cherry pick a few passages about the new creation. Moreover, there's a fence around the Lord's table, isn't there? It is never the case that God allows anyone and everyone to come to him however they like. 
They must come to him through the new and living way that Christ has opened through the veil by his flesh. To the blood of Jesus is the only way sinners may approach the living God. Nor is this passage, this vision here, to be considered a contradiction with Ezekiel's vision. Nor the apocalypse to John, where in chapter 21, heaven, the new Jerusalem, is said to have a great high wall with 12 gates. The purpose is not that we would take Zechariah's vision literally. The purpose of this vision is to give Zechariah and the Hebrew remnant an understanding of God's perspective and what God is doing and shall do for his people. And here God shows his prophet, who is part of a very small remnant, that the city of God and the people of God will one day be a vast multitude. And that's where he turns at the end of verse 4. He says, the multitudes coming into the city of God will be so great, it will be impossible to build a wall. It will not be a crowded, dirty, dingy city, but a series of unwalled villages sprawling outward and filling the land with people and animals. Now, why the animals? Because there's tons of food there. There's plenty to eat there. What a contrast. For Zechariah to see. The city all around him is depopulated and empty with a few scattered shanties and repaired houses dotting an otherwise desolate city. But the Lord again promises a vast ingathering to his city. The city will be too vast for a wall because of the multitudes of people coming to this city to worship the living God and because of the abundance of provision made for them in livestock. As a look at verse 5, there's security and there's glory. A city without walls is a paradigm for what in the scripture? You remember? Vulnerability, especially because of a lack of self-control. Proverbs 25, 28. And so God promises, this will not be like a defenseless, wallless city such as the present Jerusalem, but that he himself will be a wall for her and a wall of fire. You remember from the the second vision, Jerusalem is surrounded by her enemies on every side, but he says God will defend his people. Around Zechariah and his contemporaries were constant reminders of the failure of their walls. The streets and the parks of Jerusalem were littered with rubble. A generation later, a generation after this, maybe two generations after this, Nehemiah returns to the city and the streets in some places are still so clogged with rubble from the walls that he can't get through. Jerusalem had mighty walls. The city withstood a siege for more than a year. But those walls failed. Those walls failed. And so we must see by way of application, only God's defense is viable. Calvin comments, we indeed know that though walls may be high and thick, they may be scaled by enemies. But who will dare to throw himself into fire? 
It is then the same as though God had spoken thus. Though there will be no watchmen to defend Jerusalem, no soldiers to protect it, in short, no guardians, whatever, yet I alone shall be sufficient, for I shall not only be a wall to keep off her enemies, I shall also be a fire to fill them with terror. Walls of fire, God promises. And so Zechariah is made to understand it is not the case. It is not the case that the church is to use worldly means to advance her cause or to ensure her survival or relevance. Now, this is not to say the church should not appeal to the civil magistrate to do his duty in upholding justice and order. But the church must not rely upon political, military, or other worldly means to to secure her survival, success, and prosperity. How often is the church tempted to compromise with the world? To soften her message in order to gain a hearing with the world. We we see that right now with the the He Gets Us campaign in the media, which Jesus, you remember, is is portrayed as this entirely palatable and comprehensible figure to a, a woke and deviant society. Right? The, he gets us movement, wants to give Jesus a makeover to show he's, he's not all that different from the concerns of a 21st century woke modernist. And their, their thinking is, if, if we can convince them to like Jesus, well, maybe they'll listen to the gospel. But the power of God's word is how it confronts us with what we are not ready to hear. What we do not want to hear. And the gospel forces us to rest in God alone. You see, we must not try to use the world's methods and marketing as a means of advancing the kingdom of God. And so the city is without walls but with God himself as a wall of fire for a glory and a covering to his people, God's people must rest in him. And so only God's means are viable. The man going out to measure the city was using those worldly measurements to gauge the success and the stability of the church so that a wall might be built. It only seems reasonable, of course, that a city needs a wall. What respectable city doesn't have a wall? But God has a different definition of success and security than Zechariah perceives. And it's God who determines success. God determines what success, stability, and security look like. I had a pastor friend in Mississippi. He was a Baptist and he had been run off from the congregation that he had faithfully served. He was a Calvinistic Baptist. And he and his family began worshiping in our congregation while he was between churches. And he would regularly remind me. He would say, Ryan, we're called not to success. We're called to faithfulness. After all, a pastor without a church looks like a failure. But sometimes that's exactly what success and faithfulness look like. And Terry was a faithful pastor. A tiny remnant in their hovels around Jerusalem, they looked pathetic. And yet that tiny remnant in their hovels around Jerusalem would be the means by which God would establish his kingdom 
throughout the world. We must not rely on the world's definition of success or the world's methods, but wholly trust in God's great name. Calvin's prayer on this passage, it reads in part like this. O grant that we may learn to raise our eyes to heaven, trusting in thy protection, and may boldly fight in patience until shall appear that which you once testified in this remarkable prophecy. This prophecy is a call, as Calvin put it, to boldly fight in patience. It's a call to faith. It's a call to fight. It's a call for patience. Waiting on the Lord and trusting in the means that he has given to reconcile sinners to himself and to sustain his church until he comes. And that's exactly what we have signified and sealed in this table before us tonight. In this table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that Christ has satisfied all that God's law requires and demands of us. And we proclaim that he is going to return, that he has triumphed, that he has absorbed all the wrath of God for our sins and ascended to the right hand of power and glory. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that your beloved Son gave us this meal. That we might look away from ourselves and come to him with the empty hands of faith to receive and rest in him alone. Bless us, we pray, for his sake. Amen.